Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Goomba Gone Wild, Andrew Phillips. Goomba! (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect him to do that. I always do something weird at the start of these. And today, for the first time in our run, we're joined by a special guest host. From Aiden Belazer's first impressions, it's Aiden Belazer. What's going on, guys? Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It is the Aiden Belazer. Yeah, I think there's only one of me. Can I get your autograph after the show? You can't. Oh. Maybe, maybe I'll give it to you. I'll sign it on your breast in blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus, that went dark really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's a metaphor for this whole film. That yeah, went dark be. really quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this week, the three of us are circling the drains after a film featuring dinosaurs, parallel dimensions, and Dennis Hopper pretending he's a T-Rex. That's right, we watched a Super Mario Brothers movie, but does this video game adaption deserve another life? Or should the plumbers be called to unclog this shit in the toilet of cinema? Find out after the trailer. Feeling we're not in Brooklyn no more. They're brothers. They're plumbers. They're on the trail of a kidnapped princess and a mystical meteorite. It's incredible! That gives anyone who possesses it the power. To rule the universe. Get me the rock! Come and get it, lizard breath! Now, they must rescue the princess. And make it safely back. Later, alligator. To our world. Are you alright? Before time runs out. Brothers, this ain't no game. Bob Hoskins is super Italian stereotype in this movie based on the popular video game Super Mario Brothers. Directors Rocky Morton and Annabelle Janke opt to ignore the series' extensive and meaningful lore, instead focusing on dinosaur cities, interspecies relationships, and hardcore plumbing action. Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo are the titular heroes in this film that somehow never features them once jumping on the bad guys. So first up, we have to ask the question as to why we have nominated Super Mario Brothers for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies. Without spoiling too much of the film, I think it's fair to say that this was something of a critical and financial flop for everybody involved. (laughs) (laughs) And since then, it's just gone to be ignored by all of the games, I guess. It doesn't really matter much since the film ignored the games in the first place. But I've got to ask both of you, do you have any experience with the Super Mario Brothers prior to this podcast? I have none, because I'm not a gamer. Although I do remember this film coming out at the time. I remember there being TV promos. I just remember the weird vibe that it got. I mean, I was only six when it came out, but I remember it having a very 
It's very strange reception as it was, and I even remember when it came out on video, it was always regarded as being a bit weird and very disconnected from the game, yeah. which I obviously knew. Apart from that, I never saw the film until recently, and then only in fits and starts, and this is the first time I actually saw it full length. So that's really my whole relationship with Mario. I mean, I've seen a couple of people play it, but I've yeah. never played it myself or had really any interest in it. Well, it's good to have somebody on that just has no experience with the game whatsoever. Yeah, that can so approach today it as I'm, a film. I'm just looking at it as a film. Yeah. I have, yeah. I've played all the early Mario games. The early Mario games? Yeah, Mario, well, the first one um, yeah. on the Game Boy, on the Snares. Uh, six Golden Coins as well, you know, when it oh, starts shit, to go a bit. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've not played loads of the new ones, uh, you know, Mario Kart and things like that, but yeah, yeah in generally, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty clued up on um, most of the Mario games, even like going into 64 and like 3D and things like that. Yeah, for me, I'm the same as well. I was very much involved with Mario as a series until probably Super Mario Sunshine, and then I just it kind of left me behind. I was perhaps too old for it at that point, but I've heard that games like Super Mario Galaxy are pretty good, but yeah. I've never actually played them myself. Yeah, I played it because I got a Wii. And it was interesting, but it was a little bit bonkers at the same time. Yeah. Most of the like the, the sort of side-scrolling games, you know, your original kind of Mario oh, games yeah. with the same sort of like a character design, 2D sort of platformer, all of those games. I say for me personally, the funnest games. Definitely, I would say mm. so as well. And I guess it's because they're laced with so much nostalgia. Looking back now. Well, yeah, I mean. It's exactly what this film does at the very beginning when you hear that sort of 8-bit theme. Yeah. You get excited and you see it, you know? You do, and it's the only place. It's a cheat because it's the <laughs> only time you've heard a Super Mario theme. <laughs> Never played again throughout the rest of the film. In a weird way, we get an Alan Silvestri score that sounds like it was intended for Mouse Hunt about five years later. It kind of feels like the same kind of score that you get for a... It's like a pratfall caper. Yeah. You know, it's uh, almost like Looney Tunes at times. Yeah, it doesn't really fit the visuals at all. No. No. I don't think much of anything actually fits the visuals. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't even think the visuals fit the visuals. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, going back to the Super Mario Brothers movie... I did actually go to the cinema to see this one. I remember my mum and dad actually picked me up from school and we went to go see it and I thought it was amazing at the time. <laughs> I really did. So did I, man. I was duped too. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those films where so many years later I got to know that it had a poisonous reception and it wasn't well loved. That I was like, oh no, everybody was wrong and I'm right, even though I haven't seen it in years. And then I watched it again. I was like, oh no, <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> Obviously, I watched it a few times just gearing up for this episode, but maybe the last time I saw it was like seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Like quite a while. So I was trying to, you know, when you have those sort of like memories of a film of how you felt about that film at the last time you watched yes. it. And because it was so long ago, I was like, no, it's not that bad. Yeah. And it is that bad. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, there's a part of me and maybe, you know, it's that nostalgic sort of veil that sort of sits over your head. That kind yeah, of like, you know, most tinted glasses. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I was watching, I still had fun with it. I still thought it was... It was bad good for me personally, yeah. but seeing it more subjectively as someone a bit older yeah. and definitely more into film, it was certain problems that I couldn't not see, Yeah, which is a shame, but I guess that's what we're going to talk about. Well, as everybody who listens to Best Forgotten Movies knows that we like to talk about the history of our films before we actually start talking about them. And mentioning the problems, this film had something of a torturous production history, as so many of the films do on Best Forgotten Movies. Okay, so I have been conducting the research on Super Mario Brothers, so I have a little history to really get into. And there are a few names that everybody must know. 
Roland Joff was the producer that bought the rights to the video game series after meeting with Shigeru Miyamoto, who is the creator of Super Mario Bros. Now, there were many other people and many other studios bidding for the Super Mario Bros. property to turn it into a film, and amongst them was Disney. And Roland Joff actually managed to get the rights for half the price simply because Shigeru Miyamoto actually liked him. And so he kind of undercut all of the competition just simply based on personal relationships. And that was much to the dismay of other studios that wanted it, really. Though it's weird in a way that it actually ended up being a Disney movie. Yeah, Disney distributed it. It was a Buena Vista film. Yeah, it's a Hollywood Pictures release. Like, that's what's at the start of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And Hollywood Pictures was the third film arm of Disney. I mean, it's kind of now defunct, but it was the poor relation to Walt Disney Pictures and Touchstone. And I never quite understood why it was there. I just thought, why not just release everything adult through Touchstone or something that's not entirely Disney through Touchstone, because that's what everyone associated it with. But it's a Hollywood Pictures film. Mm. And yeah, at the end of the film, it does say distribute by Buena Vista. So I'm not sure what happened there. Yeah, what was their deal? What Mm. is it that they actually did in terms of their mission statement being as a studio? Yeah. Maybe it was to put some distance between them and the Super Mario Brothers movie. (laughs) Just on a side tangent to that. You've got films nowadays like Cars and things, which um, obviously have a huge merchandise reason for production, if you like. Yes, yeah. But at the time, Mario was huge. He was already on like lunchboxes, t-shirts, toys, whatever. So do you think that was part of it as well in terms of like getting a production like this done? Because then what would you do have toys based on the actual live action characters? Like, or do you think that maybe, although it's like that nowadays like Cars 2 might go into production to make more toys and things and sell that way, that this was kind of like some of them were trying to buy the rights so they could do that too because it was already a really popular gaming character. Yeah, perhaps. And I know something that is mentioned on a few websites is that Miyamoto actually thought that he would have more creative control over the project, selling it to Roland Joff rather than Disney. So I guess that would mean that they would retain rights such as merchandising as well. Because there were action figures made for this, weren't there? I remember there were. Yeah, I did have a Mario and Luigi figurines when I was a kid that were modelled after Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo, which is weird. So did I, with the little uh, stomper. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Things, and they didn't really do You could press them down, there was like springs in them, but yeah. that was about it. And you had to do the rest with your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the best, though, using your imagination. Yeah. Toys these days are far too articulated like lego and you like you build exactly what it says on the thing and it's like cool lego choking hazard blocks yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. i used to have the big bucket and just build my own things unfortunately it wasn't filled with lego (laughs) (laughs) the actual bricks (laughs) did you used to make like lego cars and then just drop them from high places just to see whose would break first no no okay never mind (laughs) (laughs) oh lost childhood Okay, so after Roland Joff bought the rights to the film, Rocky Morton and Annabelle Janke were hired due to their success with Max Headroom to Mm -hmm. actually direct the film. Now, Max Headroom was a TV show and a TV movie in the 80s. Yes. Which featured this fictional AI character, this sci-fi character that was made to look like he was pixelated, but really it was live action. Yeah. And I can't remember what the actual show was about, but I think he interviewed people. Yeah, that was the main thing. It was a Channel 4 It was a Channel thing. 4 production, yeah. although many think it's an American production, given no. that it's made to look very American and features an American crew. A cast, sorry. Yeah, it was quite groundbreaking at the time, because yeah, people genuinely did think it was computer-generated, and it only came to light afterwards that it wasn't. Yeah. So it was a bit of a something of a phenomenon 
I mean, it even gets referenced in Back to the Future Part 2 where they have those talking heads in the bar. Yeah, it does. Where, like, you must have the special. Like, that's all model on Max Headroom. So they did have some sort of kudos at the time for being a bit wacky and a bit out there and pushing things forward. And they were almost the voice of the youth as well back then. Yeah, they yeah. were very kind of tapped into what the youth wanted to see. Mm. So I can see why a studio would look to them as being potential directors for the Super Mario Brothers movie because they know what kids want to see or teenagers want to see and those are who this film is going to be going out to. Mm. But weirdly enough, when they actually jumped on board the film and they read the script that was currently written, they didn't like it. They thought it was too childish. And instead, they wanted to make a film that was more adult, that kids could like, rather than a kid's film that adults could like. Mm. I guess to use a comparison, they wanted to make it more like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Which, again, is an adult film that kids can enjoy, even though it's got all these film noir elements in it. But because it's cartoons, it's like kids love it. So that script wasn't a shooting script? It has elements of it. Right. Because they jumped on board with their own ideas. And this is where the story of this film being a completely different idea that was retrofitted to fit the mold of Super Mario Brothers. But actually, there was a script already in place and they jumped on board with their own ideas and they kind of merged the two together and made this more adult film. Right. I keep saying adult film, but there was no... <laughs> I can imagine it now if turn up. They called the plumber. You've got to lick my mushroom. Oh. Oh, <laughs> Three gold coins for the privilege. Oh, fungal infection. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> yeah. So... The script that they actually came up with apparently excited a lot of people involved in the production. Roland Joffrey liked it. The directors obviously loved it. And they started to look at actors, and everybody knows they eventually cast Bob Hoskins as Super Mario and John Leguizamo as Luigi, and they also loved the script that was currently in place. Now, I want to talk about some other people that were actually... uh, touted to be characters in this film and i just want your opinions on this if that's all right so first off somebody that heavily lobbied for the role of mario was in fact tom hanks the tom hanks the tom hanks tom hanks yes one more time (laughs) tom hanks Mm. i mean if you think of tom hanks where he was at that point in his career i imagine this would have been touted as a potential production in the late 80s to early 90s yeah so tom hanks known for comedies like big at that point yeah he's just a bit too lanky and a bit too young i mean definitely for luigi maybe yeah i I can see that yeah not for mario mario needs to be a short and stocky kind of guy but here's the reason that they passed on him yeah and it was that at the time they didn't think he was a big enough box office draw well after like big after big yeah splash in Mm -hmm. whatever else he was doing at the time big was very successful right yeah it it was wasn't it yeah but they didn't think he could carry a hollywood film on his own well and then he won the oscar for philadelphia yeah (laughs) yeah i can see why he'd want to do it just off the name alone it was probably the biggest video game of the time definitely yeah i think what's happened here is a lot of these actors that were actually lobbying for the role of mario or somebody in this film had kids that played the game yeah actually i've got a fun bit of trivia just to tell you really quickly oh go on yeah it's just a little uh, trivia fact off imdb so i'm not 100 it's accurate but it sounds pretty accurate yeah so bob hoskins didn't know the film was uh based on a really popular game until his son asked what he was working on after he'd read the script and he was like yeah i'm working on a film called super mario brothers and his son immediately recognized it and showed him the computer game and they played the game together on his son's nintendo that he had in his house oh that's cool yeah that is a true fact yeah that's a nice little story (laughs) i said true fact it's a fact (laughs) (laughs) those false facts those false facts And then this must have been a testament to how good this other script must have been. The fact that he signed 
for something that he didn't realize was based on a property. So he didn't yeah. sign for it based on what it could get him. Yeah, he didn't know who Mario was. He didn't know that it was already a big thing. So yeah. he had signed on to the script just based on the script. Mm. So other people that were actually interested in the role of Mario was uh, Dustin Hoffman. And it was actually offered to Danny DeVito, which is more in the line of who I could expect to be playing Mario. Totally, I could see Danny DeVito. <laughs> Definitely. And also, before Dennis Hopper was cast as King Cooper, the role was offered to Kevin Costner, who passed on it. <laughs> no. It was offered to Michael Keaton. <laughs> and finally, it was offered to Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Get me those plumbers. Cooper. <laughs> Cooper coins. Cooper. <laughs> I can just see that being like... Um, Bowser. <laughs> Actually, that was a really that was how I knew you, Bowser. <laughs> Mine for your Bowser. <laughs> but I can just see that being like a Mister Freeze done four years early. Definitely, yeah. But it just would have overshadowed everything. Yeah. So talking about this script that apparently excited everybody. As the production actually neared, the studio wasn't happy with that version of the film. And they had constantly pushed for it to be more childlike and kind of kiddish, really. I actually heard this on the documentary that they constantly mention the studio, but they don't actually say which one it is. Although I imagine it would be Disney. Mm. And in fact, they hired Ed Solomon, the writer of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, to rewrite the script completely. Despite the fact that sets had been built, storyboards had been drafted, and everybody was excited about this other version of the film. And so 10 days before they were due to film, Jesus. they get this new script through the door. The directors get this script and are told, you are forbid from touching it. This is the script you're going to film. And all of a sudden they have these sets that don't actually match any of the script. You get that with the film as well, that it's a moody looking film with these Blade Runner type environments, but everybody's talking like they're in some kids program. Oh, what I wouldn't give just to read that first script. Yeah. I know. I mean, it kind of makes a lot of sense, the fact that you mentioned Bill and Ted, because it, it did feel at times like a Bill and Ted kind of film, especially the stuff with Big Bertha and Toad. They did feel like they could be characters in the Bill and Ted world. I don't know if her name's actually Big Bertha. That's what I'm it calling her. It is Big Bertha. Holy it is, shit! <laughs> it, is big, it is Big Bertha. Yeah. I said that as a joke. No. <laughs> You're playing a character called Big Bertha. Oh, joy. We need somebody that's thin. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they had the script that... And actually, the script itself didn't work because the whole story revolves around this meteorite fragment that King Cooper's after. And in the new version of the script they had, that meteorite fragment actually changed hands a number of times in between scenes. The writer simply forgot who had the meteorite at certain points. So they had this script with these giant continuity errors as well, and it became evident very quickly that they had to hire some new writers to just come in and make it work. So that kind of explains some of the problems with this film that are pretty evident when you watch it. And I think... Perhaps to talk about the directors in a much kinder light and how big the job was on their hands and how daunting it was, they actually came up with a few great scenes, including the film's best scene, On the Fly. Now, what would you say that the film's best scene is? The best scene? I quite like the car chase section. Okay, yeah. It's bonkers, but I just I still quite like it, even though it makes these cars look like um, dodgems with like the sparks coming out. I'm surprised no one got injured yeah. um, <laughs> on set. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm going to base my answer on Andy's answer. 
<laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite scene? Anything involving Gumbas. Well, it was a scene involving Gumbas. It was, in fact, the uh, elevator the scene. The elevator scene with the dancing. The yeah. swaying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He turned up on the day. They had no scripts for it. It said it simply said that the Mario Brothers entered an elevator, and that was it. So they had to come up with something for them to do while they were in the elevator. And he emptied the room. He told everybody that he wanted an extended break just to storyboard this scene out very quickly. And instead, he said he just sat there and thought about what to do next. And he decided, oh, well, they're like snakes, aren't they, these reptiles? So let's say they get hypnotized by the music and they start swaying. And it became like almost a recurring thing in the film as they went on towards the end. They're constantly getting hypnotized. (laughs) (laughs) When everything's good at the end as well, once, you know, Cooper's been destroyed and whatnot, and they're like painting over the propaganda posters, that's it. And then you do see there's a bit where there's like a line of the Goombas. Yeah. And they're all just like swaying in a line. So maybe they had to tie back to that as well, which is quite nice. What happens to the Goombas and the lizard people? Do they get turned back at the end? No, I don't think they do. They're never showed. These are the genuine people. These yeah. are people that have been devolved. As soon as Cooper's dead, it seems that like certain things are undone, but then others aren't. Yeah. Maybe that's the sequel, I'm not sure. Yeah. That they never made and allude to quite heavily. But they have a machine to reverse all of this stuff. We never see it get used. I mean, surely they're just the devolve gun. It can be an evolve gun as well. Exactly. Right? It so does they could show just... that it can. Yeah, it'd be easy for them just to walk around and shoot, shoot, shoot. In fact, they do it at one point. They evolve two of the characters in the film, Iggy and whatever he's called. Spike. Iggy and Spike. Yeah, they evolve them. So they speak like British people all of a sudden for some reason. Oh, yes. I'll have a cup of tea. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's just intelligence. I mean, you can't be intelligent, obviously, without a well-spoken British accent. Clearly, yeah. they've never watched the Jeremy Kyle show. <laughs> Or listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, my last bit of information I have for this part of the podcast is that Rocky Morton and Annabelle Janke, the directors, were forced out of the production once the film had completed shooting. And Roland Joff and the cinematographer Dean Semler actually took over as directors when it came to reshoots. And I think they tried to make the film funnier. Mm. And there's a lot of ADR in this film as well. Everybody seems to speak. I'd say at least 70% of the dialogue in this film is ADR. It's people speaking without the lips moving or with the back to the camera. The worst scene for that is when they're in the truck at the beginning before they've gone over to the Mushroom Kingdom or Cooperville or whatever it's called. Yeah, it's painfully obvious. They're driving down and he's talking about, what's the rival plumber group? The Capellis. Capellis. Capellis, that's the one, yeah. And they're talking about, well, they're just talking in general. And the amount of times you can see like, the side of the faces and they're obviously not talking. Yeah. Like, they just put this whole unnecessary, really, conversation in there. And it's just so bad. It's just bants, mate. Banter. <laughs> And I mean, the, the thing with that whole, like, plumber competition thing, and I'm like, plumbing doesn't work like this. I've actually wrote that down in my notes, is that when has plumbing been this competitive? Where it's, like, people <laughs> racing for the same job. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, like, one time, like, I, I hired a plumber out, and another plumber turned up, and then outside, one had a trident and a net, and the other had a sword <laughs> and shield. <laughs> you know, and the victor came in. Yeah. Uh, That's how it works. How did they even intercept these calls? Are they just, like, sitting outside plumbing places with their scanners? Like, this <laughs> It's not, it's not, they're not making fucking Nightcrawler or something like that. It's, like, it's not that kind of a gig. They're fucking plumbers. They turn up and they fix people's pipes. That isn't a euphemism. That's literally what they do. Yeah, one of them's just plugged into the phone line going, Okay, boss, we got one. Let's go. How much would they be spending on equipment at like the man hours for like a, a job that is essentially would cost them around about $200? I don't understand the whole Scapelli plot line anyway because like no. what is his bag what is his thing does he want to be the king of the plumbers he also has the worst henchman as well oh, because yeah, yeah, yeah. when they do their evil at one point they try and flood this fossil site 
when they're running away, they're instantly identified as Capelli's men because they're wearing the fucking uniforms. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who, when they're doing evil, when they're doing bad things, wears their own fucking uniform? <laughs> it reminds me of that guy that once tried to rob a store when he had magic marked his entire face, thought nobody would recognize him, and then it didn't wash off. So <laughs> <laughs> they were like, well, that's the guy that did it. <laughs> I didn't really get why Scapelli, why are they trying to do whatever they're trying to do at the site where the dinosaur bones are? I don't think they actually say it at any point. I think no, it's, it's that age-old reason called reasons. Yeah. <laughs> For reasons. For reasons. Yeah, you may never find out what they're trying to build. No. All we know is that he's shady. He just wants the tunnel. Yeah. And isn't it weird that there's fossils in the tunnel, like, just there? Like, there's no dig site. It's just an actual tunnel. Yeah. And there's fossils on the floor. Well, don't we find out later that he's the one who opened the portal from this side? Yeah. Or at least someone says, oh, somebody opened it from the other side as in our side when they're on the other side. Yeah, Does but that make then sense? there's the flashback with the mother like yeah, 20 years like... before. Well, I mean, I don't understand because in the film they say that the Scapellis came across the fossils while they were digging the tunnel. But yet we are shown that 20 years beforehand, there was already an opening. Yeah, there was actually... Between the two worlds. So who actually created this opening between the two worlds? And if this was like underground, how the fuck did Daisy's mum get into our world? Where where the fuck did she come from? All I think I know is that Daisy's dusting the bones off her dead mum. Without sounding too upsetting. That's that's horrible. (laughs) No, that can't be a dead mum. That's an actual dinosaur. That's an actual dinosaur. No, but when her mum dies, she transforms back into a dinosaur, right? Because she looks like a... No, she doesn't. Really? No. I mean, she does give birth to a fucking gigantic egg. How the fuck does she do that without just ruining every single shred of her? Oh, God. I mean, like, one thing, a baby comes out of an egg and these nuns are all seen as... No, no, they would run away. They'd be terrified. Like, a baby comes out of an egg. And the other thing is that they're reptiles that have evolved into humans with hair and nails and, and teeth. Yeah. Like flat teeth and none of it really makes sense to be mm-hmm. honest with you. So. Oh yeah, the basic rules of evolution are just bullshit in this film. Yeah. There's and gotta like, be some point where some kind of reptile shagged an ape. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then, that's that's the evolutionary chain that led to this. And and, and this is a Rape thing tile. that <laughs> And this is a thing that I don't understand about Cooper's plan. <laughs> Add it to the list, mate. <laughs> there's this dimension thing, and there's just the reptiles on this particular dimension, and yeah. they're just in this one little city in the whole world. And he wants revenge on the mammals, which only makes sense in the sense that they're the only species in that particular world for some weird reason. Yeah. It fails to acknowledge the fact that there are reptiles in the mammal world also. But also in the reptile world, let's call it, in Cooper's world, yeah. he does order a pizza with extra mammal on it. Oh yeah, there's uh, there's far too many references to things that would happen in our dimension that yeah. are just retrofitted. It's very DreamWorks in does that Does that respect. mean that there are actual, actual mammals? In that world, then. And what are they? Next time I order a Domino's, I'm not going to ask for a specific meat. I'm going to just say, can I have it with extra mammal, please? Yeah, can I have it with extra... And uh, pterodactyl. And that's the other Pterodactyl thing. tail. He, he orders oh. a pizza with fucking dinosaur on it, so he's basically a cannibal. A cannibal, yeah. Yeah, all well, the meats, though. Well, to be fair, he is eating other dinosaurs. Like then the again, dinosaurs did, did eat other dinosaurs. it's still so. weird. And also, I don't get why, in the street scenes, there seem to be varying levels of evolved beings... Yeah, there are people that are very reptilian looking and have things on the faces and yeah. scales and whatnot. And then there are people that are just people. Yeah. But like punks and goths and shit. And they do an odd like little twitch or a hiss or something like that. Like uh, Aunt Petunia later on when she does that <laughs> shake of her head. 
I forgot yeah. she was in it. Yeah. I think the problem is that they could have maybe made things a little bit more clearer by setting at least a few rules. I think at one point there's probably been a script that had rules on it, that had a world that they had created. And then when it actually came to film and it became less about the script and more about just making it funny or making it through the actual production day to day in any mm. way they can. I was thinking maybe some of the main characters would have had more lizardy features and maybe it'd have been told that oh, this yeah. is too horrific looking, just make them look like humans. We've been through a lot of these films where changes are made by outside parties that basically make the film that they want to make make less sense. Yeah. So actually, that's a nice little segue for me to actually begin speaking about the script that they ended up with. And I have to ask as well, even if this film would have been at their best and everything that the directors wanted it to be, would it have made a good Super Mario Brothers movie? Because I can't imagine making a film based on Super Mario Brothers and it actually working. But this version of it really does have very little to do with the games. Well, I read that this was the first, at least this scale, feature film based on a video game. Yeah. But ultimately, the problem is, unless you have like a lore you'd have to create something out of nothing because yeah. ultimately there's a simple story in the Mario games. Peach, the princess, is abducted. For whatever reason, Mario, the plumber, goes and rescues her. And each time he gets to a castle, he defeats one of Bowser's or King Koopa's minions. Mm-hmm. They're not there. He goes to another world, so yeah. to speak, with another batch of levels in it. And the process repeats until you get to the end. You defeat King Koopa or Bowser. And then he saves the princess and that's it. There's nothing, there's no arc in the game. No, it's there's, literally there's about jumping nothing. on shit all the way through it. <laughs> and collecting coins. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think you pose with a problem that you'd have to create something out of nothing anyway. And people wouldn't be attached to a story because there isn't really a story. The story's a sentence. People are more attached to the look and the feel and the sound of the world. So maybe the only thing you could get to maybe make it as similar as possible would have been to replicate some of the visuals and sounds. Yeah. But beyond that, there's nothing else you can do. I think that they probably went down the wrong line in terms of the tone by making it an adult film that kids could enjoy. Because the thing is about the games is they're all about entertaining kids and adults enjoy it by extension. And although there's very little there in the way of story, if you strike a film that's closer in tone to the video games, I think it would appease more people. If it was a lot more lighter and a lot more brighter. Because Mario is about colourful worlds and colourful environments. It's not about Blade Runner type neon cities. I mean, look at the Goombas from a (laughs) Goomba. Look at the Goombas from the game. And then look at the Goombas as they appear in the film. Yeah. Forget the film existed, so to speak, or when it was in pre-production. You put those two pictures up next to each other, you would never say they're related. There is that game with the Goombas where they are circular, but they don't look anything like that. It's just the heads. I mean, even Toad is a punky musician. Yeah, he's like some alternative folk star Yeah, with his guitar and harmonica, and he simply got a swirl around his head. Yeah, and that's about it, whereas Toad's one of the biggest characters from the franchise. I think it's just, again, they've just taken the names and just put them on random elements. And there are things in there that do look or have some kind of connection to the game counterpart, but it's superficial. It's completely superficial. However, I do think that if they would have gone with the previous script that they had, it still would have made a more interesting film than the one that they ended up with. It does sound like it excited everybody involved. Everybody wanted to make that version of the film, and then that was kind of, the rug was pulled from under them 10 days before they were due to shoot. It's almost like Fantastic Four in that way, in that even at its best, it probably wouldn't have been a good Fantastic Four film, but it would have been a more interesting film than the one they ended up with. And what they've ended up with, it's neither faithful to the game, and it's neither interesting. Yeah. 
I agree, totally. Although, unfortunately, that middle ground, which sucks. We come across this so very often in the podcast, where it's films that are at least studios that fail to commit to certain visions in some way and just end up making a film that appeases nobody as a result. And this version of Super Mario Brothers, it would have been a risk, but at least they could have ended up with something at the end of the day and not this flop that they did. Yeah, and the problem is maybe sometimes when they put too much behind the fact that it's a popular character or a popular franchise, so it's going to sell anyway. So it doesn't really matter as much that we focus on a really interesting story, for example, because we know we're going to get people coming and sitting down on seats and paying money. Yeah. Maybe the other script might not have been that faithful to a degree, but it would have been a really interesting story, which I guess if people were getting excited about it, that speaks for itself in a way. In a weird way as well, because it's much more prevalent these days, bar a couple of comic book adaptations, this was the first film that was genuinely based on a brand yeah, rather than anything solid. I mean, even with the comic book films, you had reams of stories that you could source from. This is just based on a brand. And obviously, we're seeing a lot of films like this now, like obviously with the Angry Birds and uh, things like Monopoly and fucking Battleship and stuff like that, where they're based on brands. But we have also seen where it works with the Lego movie. Oh, yeah. Because I I kept thinking of the Lego movie when I was watching Super Mario Brothers as a film that did this, but worked. Yeah, I'd say the Lego movie is an exception to the rule. Definitely. Um, we've got to look got, at who's you've involved. Got Lord as well. and Miller on yeah. there. So basically, anything they touch is unconventional and generally turns to gold. I'll say that now. Yeah. They'll produce a really shit film now because yeah. I said that. But but they have um, made a career out of turning really risky and potentially awful properties into yeah. true slices of gold. Yeah. But that's about their interesting take on it. Like the Lego Movie, without spoiling anything, just the way it ends up. I thought it was really unique. It I, was. I didn't, yeah. I didn't think they were going to go down that route. And it just kind of spoke to the nostalgia value of playing with um, Lego and how I felt as a kid and things like that. And I think that's yeah. what hit a lot of people in that way. And they knew that, and it was very clever what they did, rather than just being creative, it was intelligent. Yeah, mm-hmm. they actually made a film about Lego itself. Not about Lego characters or anything like that. It's got all of that in it. But it's about the feeling that you get when you play with Lego. The creativity yeah. and how it makes you feel. Yeah, which is great. And I somehow doubt that the sequels will ever return to that idea again. No, no already trying to milk it dry with all these spin-offs, spin-offs like batman yeah. and stuff like which i'm definitely gonna go see it's earned the benefit of the doubt so far but i'm not as comfortable with where it's going no it's like catching lightning in a bottle with that yeah. kind of stuff and yeah when you start losing the people that made it special that's when things start to go awry but it, as a brand film where you've got very little content to actually go on it must have been a strange experience adapting this in the first place which is yeah. why it ended up probably going so wrong because no one really knew what to do with this or mm-hmm. what would work and what wouldn't work so they're kind of very much feeling around in the dark with this one well i think it's something that studios haven't really got past in terms of video game movies because we haven't really had an incredibly successful one, perhaps other than the Lara Croft series, Lara Croft Tomb Raider series, that is. Again, they weren't critically well-received, but the first one made money. It was, for a while, the yeah. biggest video game movie. But having said that, I think these days, because of the way that video games have evolved, not to use a pun, because we're yeah. using that a lot today, but... Um, <laughs> but um, yes. It's going to be far easier to adapt a current video game than it would have been back then because even though I still think a lot of video games generally have B-movie plots, mm-hmm. it's far easier to adapt them into actual fully functioning films with their storylines. Yeah. 
computer games now, they're like movies or television seasons, I suppose, because of the length of them mm. in and of themselves, like the Uncharted series. It's like playing a film, an action-adventure film, like Indiana Jones kind of, or yeah. The Last of Us. Oh, definitely. There's some sections in that game that just really get you. And it's a beautiful-looking game. It plays nice, but you play that game for the characters and the story. And it's come so far as a storytelling medium, the video game industry. Yeah. And there are now entirely new ways of telling stories that are being explored every single year. We get all these different kinds, even on an indie game scale. Anyway, returning to Super yeah. Mario Brothers. We've already we've had our video game divergent thing, yeah. yeah. So it was necessary. Has anybody got any flaws that they would like to speak about? <laughs> well, I'm obviously looking at this film from an outsider's perspective. I mean, I very, I know very little about Mario other than I know the character names, which is probably what all Mario is anyway. <laughs> but um, it is definitely a film that falls between two stools and apes off other films. I mean, obviously you've got your Jurassic Park references in there. I mean, I'm yeah. not quite sure how long the scale would have been when they knew about Jurassic Park and that coming out. But um, I'm not sure whether that was in the filmmakers' minds or in some of the production in their mindset to tie in with this whole dinosaur thing because it does feel very strange to tie Super Mario Brothers in. I mean, there's, I know there's like lizard creatures in Super Mario, but there's no direct references to dinosaurs in the game. Yeah, because is Bowser or King Cooper in the game? actually a lizard or is he a dragon i always saw him as a big lizard rather than dinosaur but then again a dinosaur is just a big lizard right so to, yeah so but to speak just, but he wasn't made to look like a cartoon dinosaur i thought he looked like a japanese dragon but squat and we, he breathes fire as well doesn't he yeah, fireballs exactly, yeah interesting about jurassic park though is, is like for example as, as terrifying as jurassic park made the raptors i did like the creature design on uh, yoshi I thought he was cute. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Patopolis did the creature design on Yoshi. Yeah. I actually think he's one of the best-looking creatures in the film. Even his nostrils are little, like, arsehole pulsating nostrils. <laughs> like, it's just the details there, man. Yeah. yeah. I really liked all the little Goomba faces as well. I thought they were really well done, considering how small they were. Yeah. Mm. I thought they, there was nothing... Very emotive as well. Like, you can't yeah. help but love Toad. Like, oh, yeah. that scene where he brings her the, the meat and she has for steamed vegetables. And, and then he brings like, the steamed ah, vegetables. Ah. <laughs> but... There was nothing there that even now looking at on Blu-ray made me go, oh, that's a bit of a dodgy effect. Yeah. In fact, it probably looked better than if you did it in CGI, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Unless it was really good CGI, not dog shit CGI, which most CGI is. Yeah. Sorry, CGI artists, but you know what happens. <laughs> Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. <laughs> yeah, but I was going to say, you know what happens when they don't when they get, don't get the money that they need or the deadlines that they, you know, the yeah. time that they need. Oh, yeah. Whereas when people give CGI a decent amount of resources and a decent amount of time it turns mm -hmm. good it's and when the limit the, as well yeah it's when these shots are going to be cgi and that's it uh, the only reason there is rubbish cgi in films especially from the big companies is because the filmmakers themselves don't understand or have no skills with using the effects and yeah. know how to use the technology so it's never really the, the computer animator's fault it's always the author that's in charge is always is, responsible yeah. for that but um considering how many problems the production had Effects-wise, it's pretty solid, actually. There's not really any effects that I would say are really terrible in the film. No, I wouldn't say so either. Maybe even the bit where Cooper, I guess, turns into goo is okay for the time it was made. Yeah, I didn't have any issue with that, considering, you know, the time it was made. When they turn Toad yeah. into a Goomba and you see his head doing it, yeah, okay, it's a bit weird. But I, I thought it was okay. Yeah, at, I mean, at the time, I thought, it was, I thought it was creepy. Those morphin effects were still cutting edge at the time because I think it was the uh, Michael Jackson video, Black or White, 
where everybody morphs into each other during the entire video. Do you remember it? Yeah, and there's also yeah, that was yeah. one of the first times that that technology was actually used, yeah. and that was only a few years before. Wasn't there's it? also the scene in Willow. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah that, that was one of the very first. She changed oh, yeah. shape. Yeah, yeah. But wasn't that developed in tandem with each other for that? Yeah, yeah. They were kind of around about the same time. Yeah. But um, the other effect is of when Mario disintegrates. It actually really genuinely looked great on Blu-ray. Because yeah. I, I remember seeing it on like YouTube and thinking, oh, yeah, that's aged. But watching it on the Blu-ray, it actually looked pretty great. Yeah. I like the effect that they do as well when he... Um, when he morphs back, he's got the mushroom in his hand, and he grows bigger for a moment, and then disintegrates. I was like, oh, yeah, it's a nice little game reference there. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> when did Jumanji come out? Jumanji. 95, so yeah, two years later. Some of the CGI in that was great, and I still think it looks very good. Jumanji is an odd one for me, because I think some of the CGI in it looks great, and some of it, like the monkeys. The monkeys, monkeys look Forget terrible. the monkeys. Yeah, but Other the, the, monkeys. the stampede looks excellent. Or like at the start, where you spinning round, and everything gets sucked into the board game, into the glass centre. Mm. Mm-hmm. That looked good. No, no, d- definitely. I still think there's some absolutely stunning CGI in Jumanji. It's just every mm. time those monkeys are on the screen, <laughs> yeah, you just want to check out the film. Yeah. yeah. But um, just going back to the story as an outsider, all these concepts where they yeah they're aping off of the films and like yeah aping off Blade Runner and Jurassic Park and everything. I mean, there are a couple of nice things in the film. It's just that it's gets caught between so many different things. It falls between two stills that it not being a game, not being what they wanted it to yeah. be. And also because they're trying to tie these things in, it makes the film so disjointed because they're trying to pay lip service to the game but then try and do their own thing. Mm-hmm. It is a film that has a couple of really nice moments in there. And I say the Goombas are the, definitely the best thing in the whole film. It just really falls short of being anything in particular. Yeah. <laughs> really, it's not, you can't describe the film to somebody, and there's so many lapses in logic. For some reason, I mean, I, I do think that the film looks okay for what the direction that they were going in. I don't mm. think it looks anything like a Mario Brothers movie should look like. No. But for the sets that they made and the creatures that they came up with, it still looks really solid. But yet, it still has this feeling that it's unfinished. And I think that's because of the script that we spoke about, mm. that it's... Despite the gloss of how the film looks, how it sounds, and how the story plays out, you get the feeling that there are things being picked up and thrown out as they're going along. You can actually tell. And you get weird scenes as well, like complete tonal shifts, like the scene where King Cooper, played by Dennis Hopper, doing his best Blue Velvet. Yeah. <laughs> well, around this time, he was just hired to play that character, yeah. wasn't he, really? <laughs> and he's, uh, in fact, coming on to Daisy, which is a bit weird. And he's trying to seduce her in some way or force himself on her. There's some weird sexual scene. No? Nobody remember that? Just me? No. Wait, when he introduced Yoshi for the first time? Yeah, but there's some weird... He's being, like, smarmy in that Dennis Hopper way that mm. he is. That You know, um, that's that's not the word. What, creepy? Oily, yeah, you know. Well, maybe like, that's just like his hair. from Fern Gully. What's his name? Hexus. Hexus. I yeah, think so. He used to genuinely make me feel uncomfortable well, when I was Tim a kid. it's Tim Curry oh, again. Yeah. yeah. As a character, he's kind of sexually charged. Yeah. I think that's just Tim Curry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tim Curry can't do anything where he isn't that kind of... Even when he's just voicing something, he's slimy uh, in that way. He does, like, suck on, like, pipes. Yeah, and, it like... really made me oh, uncomfortable. That's, isn't that the scene where we have the CGI tongue as well? Yeah, that's With the one. The, yeah, the yeah. CGI lizard he, he, tongue. That's it. He shows good. the CGI tongue and stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, like it's a little sexual thing going mm. on. It's like, yeah. He's a randy lizard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm still trying to get past the fact that the women in this world give birth to giant eggs. Imagine if we're walking down the street afterwards looking like a fucking slinky going down the stairs. 
for some reason I was thinking, well, what if it came out of their mouth? <laughs> but, <laughs> but ignore that one. That's just, yeah. I mean, in the game, what happened, Andy, for you, because you, you've not played the game, like Yoshi, for example, you'd get on Yoshi and Mario would ride him and he'd hit his head. So there was a bit of animal yeah. cruelty in there, really. <laughs> he'd smack his head and it would make Yoshi's tongue pop out. And you'd eat a bunch of fruits and I think maybe he'd lay another Yoshi. Or you could eat bad guys and they'd turn them into a fireball and you could fire the fireball at other people. Yeah, Real logic gone into it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I, t- I just wanted to tell you that. Just I d- oh, no, no, I'd probably say if you actually made that into a live action film, it would probably just be too horrific to look at. Yeah. <laughs> you've got animal cruelty, you've got eating people and then turning mm. them into fireballs. And it's just to like- be fair, the film does have some pretty bad scenes with yoshi i mean he is treated cruelly how come everybody we love in this film is treated so badly like we like that one goomba that's told we like yoshi yoshi stabbed toad is set on fire yeah <laughs> yeah like, this is traumatic true i was like toad's definitely got severe burns yeah. by the end of this film did they turn they don't He's turn him back for they? a long time no. he stays goomba yeah they decide that they're not going to turn them back for some no. reason you know what i think needed to happen with the goombas like you see in a few films where like the main protagonist will defeat the bad guy but the finishing blow is like someone that he's done wrong to who isn't the main protagonist right mm-hmm. Mario could have like practically beaten him in the fight and then like the Goombas finish him off yeah, yeah. it needed something like that for their arc to like, show that they're not still, completely they're still stupid up there as well yeah, yeah exactly. you needed Toad to become the leader of the Goombas and obviously revolt. lead them through his music because that's yeah. what they all liked and then yeah revolt against Cooper who's created them mm-hmm. that would have been a nice little thing because again like they were the thing that worked the best in the film so Definitely. They, sh- they really should have featured more significantly in the main thread of the story and in a strange way even going back to it as a child bar the actual look of bob hoskins and john leguizamo as the mario brothers they were the thing that i remembered the most from the marketing and the way everything looked and even the back of the video box is a picture of the goombas yeah with the little dinosaur heads mm-hmm. and i remembered that from when it came out on video and mm. they are literally the most distinctive thing about the whole film yeah but yeah, for me, the two biggest things that I remember from it is the Goombas and also the song they use, you know, that open the door, get on the floor, everybody walk the dinosaur. Was yeah. not was. What? <laughs> That's the name of the band. Oh, right. I thought I'd said something wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of my biggest takeaways from the film as well, was that song. Also, Big Bertha. I mean, yeah. she's hard to ignore. Oh my God, <laughs> that is the most unsexy dance I've ever seen on film. I'm talking about the dance between Mario and Big Bertha where he has to bite in her cleavage to get the, oh, the meteor. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it made me feel Ugh. very uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> salty. It's like, I was very upset with my erection in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> Oh, Big Bertha. She just does it for me, man. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I don't get her character anyway, because like one minute she's like pinching stuff off people, and then the other minute she's in love with Mario and then wants to help them. Yeah. And then she's like just a mean bouncer. I think she likes Mario's raw advances. animal magnetism. Yeah. Just <laughs> it's that Bob Hoskins' <laughs> pure sexual energy. You know, it's, it's, well, when she sees him across the club, it's like that scene in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy where Chris Pratt doesn't have his top on, he's just been sprayed when he first gets caught. <laughs> I mean, it's it's almost identical in yeah, terms of is, sexuality. Definitely. Well, I think the thing is with that particular character that is she is such a plot mechanic 
it's a character that's just there to take away something, give it back, and then help them in time of need. There's no other point to that character. I think she was somebody that they actually came up with on the fly because I think that was when they were having trouble with where the meteorite was and who had it. They just decided they'll come up with this character that yeah. just has it. And I think that's why her role is so inconsistent. Yeah. They needed it to be somewhere while they were captured in prison and while they yeah. had that meeting with Cooper. So it needed to just be somewhere, didn't so they, it? So they didn't have to worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there are scenes as well that really work. I love the scene in the police station. I actually really quite like the whole police station section, but mm. where they're um, up against the wall, about to have their mugshots taken. Oh, and the laser guns. have got beams, all the laser yeah. guns. <laughs> laser sighted cameras. Yeah, it's great. I, I, I love stuff like that that works scene by scene. But mm. it doesn't make a good whole. Yeah. And you've got too many characters as well. Oh, are yeah. actually given way too much screen time because even the police chief is like a recurring character. And I don't think we're ever given his name. I really like the scene when it goes on about their names. You know, when they first get to the police station, they're asked about what their names are. And um, I actually watched uh, the Nostalgia Critics video on this film. Yeah. And he gets so wound up by the fact that a lot of people who were fans of the computer game were like, oh, crap, we're going to find out Mario's surname. And obviously because they're the Mario brothers. Yeah. Obviously they're Mario. Mario and Luigi Mario. <laughs> what? <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Though. I did. I thought it worked because they're the Super Mario brothers. <laughs> it's yeah. a fun little quirk. I actually do know people who actually have the same surname as their first name mm. as well. So, But don't forget, Mario is not only his brother, he's his father and his mother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly father. <laughs> so that's the other thing as well, because we're, t- we're talking about the uh, the female characters in this film. At least it's true something... to the game in that way, in that they're not really <laughs> very prominent. No, no. They seem very highly sexually charged as well. Yes. I mean, there's that whole thing. I mean, I know other people have mentioned this before about the fact that Luigi and Daisy fall in love because of their abandonment issues. Yeah. And that's pretty much the only reason why they really fall in love. Their relationship goes heavy really fucking quickly yeah, as well. Yeah. Because they're it's... like, if you want to give up here, man, it's fine with me. You know? Well, it's a classic movie romance mistake where you make them fall in love far too soon. Yeah, like after one dinner. Yeah. The fact that she even goes to dinner with them like the first time is Mm -hmm. weird. It's like, I lent you my payphone. Would you want to go for dinner with me? I'm a bit weird, yes. In that way, the film actually has no arcs for any of the characters. Who they are at the beginning is who they are at the end for everybody, with the exception of Iggy and Spike. They're the people that learn. Yeah, they are. Mario learns to believe, you know, in inverted commas. In what? Just believe in general. Like, don't, don't forget, Lu- Luigi says it all the time. I'm he's, a Scientologist now. <laughs> <laughs> no, at the beginning, like, Luigi says, um, when he's talking, that scene we spoke about where he's um, driving with a terrible ADR. And he's like, no, just trust me. Like, I've just got a thing. You just have to believe Mario or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I just learned to I trust Luigi. Gonna... But Luigi's always fucking wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you not find it peculiar, though, that so Mario is the protagonist, but the romance happens between Luigi and Daisy, which makes sense because Daisy and Luigi in the game is always kind of together, right? And, mm-hmm. and Mario is always with Peach, but there isn't any Peach. Yeah, Mario gets lost in his own film. That's what I mean. It's a bit peculiar, really. Yeah, it is. It's Luigi's film, really. It's very, yeah, it's very Luigi-centred. I guess because he's young. He's the voice of the kids out there. Bodacious. <laughs> But yeah, I guess he's a bit more hip than Mario, so I guess that's why they've given him all the cool stuff to do. And okay, yeah, sure, Luigi gets Daisy, but Mario gets Big Bertha. Then there's his other girlfriend, which is another strange subplot that doesn't really get explored at all. The fact that we've got no. all these Brooklyn women going missing. 
yeah. for some reason because he's trying to find Princess Daisy, even though they don't—they never really seem that bothered no. that they're there and there's all this weird shit going on. No, I guess this is something that the film is lacking that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago with Lost in Space in that nobody's really ever more than nonplussed about the fact that they're in a fucking parallel dimension populated by evolved dinosaurs. It's more like, okay, now let's go get Daisy. You know, yep. <laughs> no, nobody's ever fucking wowed by it. I yeah. think we get a little bit from Luigi at one point, but other than that... That's because the other universe isn't fully realised. It's too similar. Yeah. Even the people yeah. who have evolved from dinosaurs, yeah, there's a few bits here and there, like you said, that are half dinosaur, half human, but ultimately it's similar. It just looks like an area. It's so similar, they confuse it for downtown at yeah. one point. And the weird like end of Cooper's half-baked plot where the worlds merge, which we see for all of like five seconds. Yeah, where they recreate now. 11 before it actually yeah. happened <laughs> it's like they oh, predicted it's awful. it i it's reckon like... osama bin laden had an entire collection of super mario brothers movies and oh god that's where we Based can on... attribute the blame <laughs> he really wanted the world trade center to look like cooper tower i really want to do a terrorist attack but i'm just i'm struggling what i'll put super mario brothers on while Let's I think. Think i'm gonna get some i'm gonna get some, I'm gonna get some movie ideas yeah. oh god but yeah, that, that was really odd to look at. And again, but even without that reference, it's such a weak culmination of that plot where you just get that one shot. Yeah. When they were starting to dissolve, I thought some serious shit was happening. But then when they just reappeared in the other world, I was like, oh, is that what happened? Yeah. Which <laughs> is a bit disappointing. Although the comedy monkey made up for oh, it. Of course, yeah. It ties <laughs> off that plot strand that everybody really desperately yeah, needed like, to be tied off. It was like a fucking PG tips advert. <laughs> There's a sequence which gave me a different kind of nostalgia value. And it's when they're um, sliding down that pipe on the mattress. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the princesses and Mario. And the Goombas come up behind them on a, on a different mattress. And for some reason, the music at that point is different to everywhere else in the film. And it really sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, it does. I know what part you're talking about. Exactly, yeah. Actually, having said that, I'd say that's probably one of my favourite sequences. Because, again, it involves Goombas. <laughs> it's actually quite fun. It involves Goombas on a mattress. And I do love I do love any scene where it involves someone going down a track and like it's almost like a ride. Yeah. I love the fact they end up using one of the Goombas as a sledge in the end as well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I was noticed the music in that section is completely different. And is it weird that this parallel world has some of our music? Oh yeah, like they did there's a cover of Love is the Drug yeah. in the club scene. Which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. Which you were saying there's another bit of trivia in the club scene that you were gonna mention. Yes. Well, actually I'm gonna hand it over to John Leguizamo, who's gonna be talking about the club scene and some of the people that they hired. I mean, when we call this an adult film, well, perhaps there's more to this tale. There was an incident that happened, uh, among many. I mean, a lot of stuff happened during Super Mario Brothers. Uh, <laughs> that whole disco scene, they hired a whole bunch of strippers from Wilmington <laughs> to be in the scene, and they were too scantily clad. Because this was a, you know, it was a children's video game, and uh, that was conflicting for everybody. It was, it was a, t- it was a, <laughs> it was not an easy shoot because the ladies wanted to reveal everything, and they couldn't, and. I mean, we didn't mind, but uh, it wasn't the appropriate PG rating that we were looking for. So as you can hear, they actually hired strippers. And they had to control <laughs> themselves so they couldn't undress. Wow. <laughs> They're just so dedicated just, to their yeah. jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's real job satisfaction for so you. So desperate. Just, yeah. I just, just love my job. Just one tip, please. Maybe half a testicle here. Well, you know, they get paid. They, they presume. Oh, it reminds me of that scene in the between us where there's a testicle hanging out now. 
<laughs> and then I realized in the making it actually was his testicle. It wasn't a stunt Seriously, testicle. Seriously, that yeah. was his testicle? Yeah, because I watched the whole series about three weeks ago and then watched the making of and then realized it actually was his testicle. <laughs> so that was a really good pure, model. Pure dedication well. to is... the role. Take some balls. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh snap. But um... Talking about balls, let's go on to <laughs> oh my God, yeah. the fucking giant testicle that is the Mushroom King. Oh my, yeah. It, yeah, it looks halfway between like a Chinese dumpling and a testicle. No, it's full testicle. The yeah. Mushroom it's definitely gangrenous, yeah. <laughs> gangrenous testicle descending from the ceiling oh. as if the room's just got warmer. Like, yeah. oh. <laughs> Like, he's just been given a hot bath. Oh, God. And like, oh, no, the temperature's going down. Go back up. (laughs) It really is when they're touching it now as well. I've seen it in a different light. Can we say that we've all seen Lance Henriksen's ball now? (laughs) That's the weirdest cameo I've ever seen. Yeah, it is. He evolves back again by magic, seemingly, as well. Yeah. From a testicle, and then it has one line to say. Yeah, I'd say he does add a quirk himself. Lance Henriksen actually came up with the Rice Krispies in his hand when he coughs and uh, all this dust comes out. That was Lance Henriksen. He said, get me a handful of Rice Krispies, I'll make this better. And that's what he did. (laughs) That's my motto in life. (laughs) Got on a (laughs) t-shirt. But um, he did that as a favour to the producer Roland Joff. That was how that came to be. All right. Yeah. He starts, like, brushing himself off like he's not too perplexed with the fact that he's been, well, a testicle. No. For however long. He's just like, Love those plumbers. How does he know it was the fucking plumbers? I guess he's he's everywhere, isn't he? Well, that's the other thing. If he's devolved into being basically goo or primordial soup, how do they have any kind of sentient intelligence anyway? Because that's the whole point of him devolving things anyway. All he's done is turned him into another form. Life finds a way. (laughs) There's a bit I always found funny later on. You know, obviously, Luigi's understanding that the fungus is trying to help them communicate, yeah. 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 And there's a bit, you know, where the mushrooms are, like, moving. He goes, it's trying to communicate. And the first thing he does is pull it off. (laughs) (laughs) Not anymore, it's not Luigi. (laughs) You could have always said, ow. (laughs) This would be good with a fettuccine. (laughs) (laughs) That was my dick. (laughs) (laughs) When he comes back at the end, he's not got an ear. Damn you, Luigi. <laughs> he just comes back and he's like, kill me. <laughs> kill me. Because Luigi's been pulling bits of him off all the film. <laughs> that, that was the adult film they wanted to make. But at the end, in Luigi's back, it's just full of body parts. <laughs> Instead of mushrooms. Could you not be brilliant? Love those plumbers. Love those plumbers. <laughs> Okay, so I think we've already painted a picture of just how troubled this production was. And it's amazing that the directors managed to get the performances that they did out of the crew. Because I would actually say that this film is pretty well acted. Like, Bob Hoskins is good. His accent's fine. I really like his Brooklyn accent, in fact. Everybody's charming enough, affable enough. The brothers are fine. On an acting front and on a technical level... It's fine. Yeah. It's just the fucking script again. Mm -hmm. We keep seeing this again where everything else is fine. All the filmmaking part of it is fine. But the actual script that it's based on doesn't hold up and it doesn't make any sense. And again, it doesn't feel like Super Mario Brothers, which is ultimately why it failed. But on a filmmaking side, completely fine. Yeah, I think Mario and uh, King Cooper, Dennis Hopper and Bob Hoskins, they give everything they can to that. I think they do as good as they can do with it. And when you hear about how bad the experience was for them, that in fact the only way that Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo could actually get through the production was by getting drunk together a lot of the time. During filming? Well, I imagine after filming each night. (laughs) (laughs) And John Leguizamo says that he couldn't actually understand Bob Hoskins speaking in his normal Cockney accent, but once he adopted the Brooklyn accent, he could 
could understand them fine. <laughs> Which is weird. <laughs> but yeah, in order to get through production, apparently they said we both got drunk a lot. And Dennis Hopper also exploded on set in a furious manner, apparently, and just railed off at everybody about how unprofessional a production was because he had learned all these lines for this other script and every day he was getting fed new lines. Mm. And apparently that reached ahead and he just exploded at the directors, reeled off at them for a while. And I think he came to realise, according to the directors, that they weren't at fault and that it was more just the studio and circumstance that had Mm. led to this. And he worked fine with them from then onwards. But the guy that plays Spike actually says that him and Fisher Stevens were laughing like school kids <laughs> behind the scenes as Dennis Hopper was going crazy and they just couldn't stop <laughs> laughing. They felt like they were seeing something they shouldn't be seeing. Well, I know that he was meant to be there. Dennis Hopper was meant to be there for five weeks and ended up staying 17 weeks. Holy fuck, seriously? Because of the problems that they had. Which is why the film went over budget, because this is a film that wasn't a cheap film to make. I mean, even at the time, was rather expensive. At least the money is on screen. Oh, yeah, you do, uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of it anyway, is that because those sets look great. It's filmed in a cement factory for the most part. Yeah. The main part where it's really obvious that it's filmed in a cement factory or the area that they were in is when they go into the desert scenes, because it's not a fucking desert. It's basically a Doctor Who style quarry. Yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you basically in a quarry, which is obviously where the St. Man factory was anyway. Yeah. Even that bit when they drive into it, you know, he disguises himself and they're in that truck. Yeah. That kind of gate, it's just, that's what it looks like in a quarry. Yeah. Yeah, it does. In and out, yeah. So. But yeah, having said that, they're all the sets that they create in the cement factory yeah. are pretty good. It's just far too much like, it's only ever going to look like a poor man's Blade Runner. Yeah, it is. And a lot of films suffer from this. Well, there's not any daytime shots whatsoever. It's all night. That's obviously the look they were going for, and it probably suited another script. But actually, it probably hampers the film that it's all so dark and dingy. I'd like to see a bit of daytime in this world. Mm. I guess that would reveal too much, probably. You can hide a lot in darkness. We've heard about this happening before, but they were working on sets where the paint was still drying. So that, that's, that's how they were being made. Mm. I mean, most of the game levels are set at daytime. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for this kind of property, and again, I think Wreck-It Ralph has demonstrated it perfectly, if you were to do this kind of adaptation again, it would be so much better suited to being a CGI animated film because then you would be able to get those kind of worlds across. Because even if you went in the direction of doing a Mario film, mm-hmm. you'd have to do it in the way that, I don't know, um, Toys was made. You know, the whole Magritte look? Yeah. There was no way you're going to be able to get exactly the same look of a Mario game in live action, especially at this no. day and age. So I think that's maybe why they opted for the Blade Runner look. <laughs> I mean, if you actually think about it, imagine if you actually had a person, live action, jumping on the heads of things and smashing blocks with their head to reveal little things that transform them. No, that would be bonkers. Yeah, totally. But I think because also it doesn't actually look like anything out of Mario, it makes this feel like a gritty fan film in the same way. Remember that Power Rangers fan film that came out? That was a bit of a joke. uh, Have you seen it? It's all like them fighting each other, but there's real blood, real guts, you know, and they're (laughs) saying fuck and stuff like this. (laughs) It's got Katie Sackhoff in it. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It almost feels like that, that this film feels like just a gritty fan film where I guess 
everybody goes through that phase where they want to see like oh, I'd love to see Sonic but done gritty you know everybody <laughs> goes through that phase in their life where they're about 13 years old and I guess that's why this film appealed to me when I was young because it's like oh it's an adult version of Mario well they did make a futuristic Sonic TV series a cartoon series that was like a spin-off to the main cartoon series that was set in the future and I remember that being pretty dark I mean there's like android versions of different characters that end up being like taking possession of the other characters and things yeah. like that the way they made Dr. Robotnik look was fucking horrifying uh, I remember that from being a kid because it scared the shit out of me but um, <laughs> yeah it's all around it's all around from that period that like mid 90s mm. where they didn't quite know what they were going to do with video games it's weird because in the 90s all these films had this similar moody look to them like they were all trying to riff on the films of the 80s I mean I know you mentioned Mad Max Thunderdome that this reminded you of that it's like aesthetically that, I'm, yeah. I'm Blade Runner and Hollywood went through this phase of really trying to cash in on that in the 90s with the Super Mario Brothers and Tank Girl is another one that we've covered on this show. we got all these post-apocalyptic MTV movies almost. Well, Street Fighter did it Street as well Fighter, when they definitely, did that. Yeah. So. Oh, that was another video game triumph. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Raul Julia's last film. Oh. oh. He's up there with Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't mentioned about the prologues yet. Oh, fuck, the prologue! Yeah, and also the fact that there's two. I mean, that's always a bad yeah. sign yeah. in a film when you get two scenes set before the main action that are completely unrelated to each other. I'm not sure whether this is part of the fact that they never really got the script completely sorted to explain the actual plot of the film, which doesn't make sense in the first place, mm-hmm. but they have this disembodied narrator who's actually Dan Castellaneta. Is it? it yeah, yeah, it's um, Mr. Homer Simpson himself. He narrates that whole opening section that's done in the 8-bit graphics and it bears no relation to anything else in the film stylistically or other than the fact that it's a Brooklyn accent. Yeah. Although I do find it quite amusing that the dinosaurs have Brooklyn accents yeah, as well. Yeah, 65 million years ago. <laughs> because, it's, because it's Brooklyn anyway. But um, yeah, it's just a really odd way to start a film. It was actually added very late in the day. Yeah, it was. I think it was part of Roland Joff's reshoots. I think they had found during a test screenings that people were unsure of what was going on when it started. So mm. they just came up with this on the fly. And it's fucking awful. It's yeah. got this horrible optical effect as well yeah. <laughs> of the um, meteorite striking Earth. I mean, it's clearly just static for most of the time, just being zoomed in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it starts off with that sort of multicolored kind of logo, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And you've got the original Mario music, yeah. or at least a version of it. And then, yeah, as you said, it kicks into this sort of like 8-bit kind of graphic style mm-hmm. bullshit. But I always did like, as a kid, the last line, which is, um, what if they found a way back? <laughs> Title. Yeah. Now, not so much. When I was a youngster, It's a trailer. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like trailer dialogue. That they should have been on the trailer, not in the mm. film. The problem is, right, is that if you create another dimension that's equal, that's like a copy. Yeah. What's the problem? They just live there. Why do they need to find a way back? They'll have the exact same resources, the yeah. exact same space. It's, it almost sounds like they've got like a... It's split in two, but it didn't split in two fairly. Like, we got the normal one, they got some shitty resource yeah, resource like, light planet or something. The thing that I didn't understand was when you, you only see the map of the world. And it's all like the desert globe. apart from one yeah, city. Yeah, and I don't understand because obviously the asteroid hit in both places or else we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So why is their world so devastated? And why is our world as it is? They should be exactly the same as each other. Near there should enough. be some other reason they want to come over, not because their planet's depleted of resources or been, like, really, really fucked by the asteroid. But then again, you know, they kidnap loads of princesses, so to speak, instead of just taking the meteorite. Surely it'd be easy just to go and snap it from around her neck and take that back over. 
Of course, yeah. He doesn't need Daisy for any reason. He just no. needs the meteorite. I don't think you can really talk about the plot inconsistencies because there's no answer to them and you'll just go crazy. It's so inconsistent. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you never you never really find out why Cooper has overthrown the royal family other than the fact that he's overthrown the royal family because he's Mr. Bad Guy. Yeah, we don't even get an idea of where he's come from. No. Or how he's risen to power. Yeah. It just makes my head dinosaur. Oh. oh. You are not allowed on this podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> you have broke the cardinal rule. But like, yeah, when you start unraveling the plot, the whole thing falls apart. It does. There's no internal logic or reasoning or motivation behind any of the things that happen in the story. It's one of those stories where things just happen. It's a film where scene by scene it's and then that happened, and then that happened, and then that. It's not because of this, that happened, and because of that, this happened. There's no chain reaction. It's just a series of things that keep happening next to each other. Mm. The situation is just an empty conduit for these characters to be able to do something. Yeah. Shame, but it's, mm-hmm. it is what it is, you know? Mm. So now that we've stomped all over the Super Mario Brothers, it's time for us to move on. So how did this film come to be forgotten? Well, perhaps there are some clues in the stats and facts. First up, it's over to the critics, and I have the Rotten Tomato score, and it has a very healthy rating of 15%. Yeah. Wow. With an average rating of 3.7 out of 10. And that's after 33 reviews, so that's a fair number of reviews for a film from 93. Uh, The critics' consensus from Rotten Tomatoes is that, despite flashy sets and special effects, Super Mario Bros. is too light on story and substance to be anything more than a novelty. It's hard to disagree with that, really. Mm -hmm. No, that's pretty much spam. And the audience score is 28%, and the average rating is 2.4 out of 5, so I guess it's got a lot of twos. Mm. And for the first of our reviews this week, we have a clip from Ebert and Siskel as they sum up their experience with Super Mario Brothers. Over to them. Our next movie is a film version of a popular video game. It's called Super Mario Brothers, and it doesn't work at all. This movie isn't either high or low tech enough. It's not as dazzling or as involving as the cutting-edge video games that would like to mirror, and it doesn't have the traditional movie elements like compelling characters or a fresh story. I also can't figure out exactly what age group this movie was made for. (laughs) I guess I didn't like it. Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo play the Mario Brothers, two Brooklyn plumbers who fall into an alternative universe where they try to rescue an abducted college student named Daisy, played by Samantha Mathis. The bad guy in this film is a lizard king, played by Dennis Hopper, the movie villain du jour these days. Some of the minor characters are cute. I like the Goombas, Hopper's helpers with pinheads and big overcoats. And right there you see the problem. This movie can't decide whether it wants to be a flesh and blood film or a real video game. That kind of chase is boring compared with the urgency of a real video game where you're under constant pressure of time and your quarters running out. It takes a lot more imagination <laughs> than what's been attempted with Super Mario Brothers to make a high-tech movie transfer. Yeah, this movie wasn't imagined no. correctly at the outset. They Correct. didn't start out with a vision of what it was going Correct. to be even before they did everything else. Right. And so you look at the movie and you see millions of dollars on the screen of special effects and all of those customized cars and that other world that yeah. they've created and everything else. And it doesn't add up to anything. No. It's just a lot of people running around, all talking at once, and a plot that nobody cares anything about. And just every once in a while, a little moment that kind of sparkles. Dennis Hopper is kind of good in a couple of his speeches, but it's a complete waste of time and money. It is. And I think, uh, you know, the timing would have been right with this explosion in infotech or whatever you want to call it, that the computers and all that. Kids are very sophisticated now. And if you could mirror that in some way, 
You could be a big bonanza. This film doesn't even try. What this movie shows is that it's a lot harder to make a high-tech movie like this yes. than you would think. And when we see ones maybe that we still have problems with, like Batman Returns, it's so much better than this yes. that you, you admire it more when you see something like this. Okay, so as you can tell, they really did not like the film, and it's hard to disagree with much of what they say. I think I disagree overall with Roger Ebert's view that video games don't rate as an art form. I think um, he was behind the times in that way, and perhaps a little bit too rooted in cinema. He couldn't see the potential. That's just typical of a new... A new art form. Yeah, a new art form. Some yeah. po- sometimes people can't quite accept. And especially when it's a, a fledgling art form where it's not quite found its feet yet, because yeah. video games well classic video games as people see them now are very slight in terms of what they actually achieve as a storytelling medium i mean they don't really do anything at all which is probably why he felt justified in saying that but obviously looking now Mm -hmm. where video games have come it's a completely different story so yeah i think that's just a common view of the time of people of a certain age yeah, because video games are really at a point that, say, silent films were. To give a comparison, look how far we've come f- with films from the silent era. And that's what video games were at, at this point in time in the 90s. I mean, they probably weren't even in the silent era. They were probably in the bit where, the, you know, they were doing the demonstration of the train going really fast. Oh, yeah. Really, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Really yeah. fast down. And the people move out of the way. Yeah, yeah. and just a moving head talking, like that kind of thing. They were mm-hmm. at that kind of level, especially when you get even earlier into the 80s it's really rudimentary stuff you can see why people would say that though at the time not anymore no. i think it's impossible to say it now but at the time yeah i mean you've just got the most simplest story to serve a computer game narrative which mm. is just levels and getting to the end and completely yeah so i can see why especially certain critics would critique it that way yeah i still think there's an art to that mm. as well in terms of uh coming up with something that's so purely enjoyable on a really kind of base level like talking about super mario it's just about jumping on things but it gives so much joy in that way it shouldn't but it does (laughs) and there's something artful about that yeah it's because back then as well a film wasn't interactive yeah but a computer game was so it was a different experience the same way that somebody could go to a gallery who really enjoys and loves art and can stare at a painting for 10 minutes 15 Mm -hmm. minutes and take something away from that and you know but to them, it tells a story. Yeah. A different art form speaks to you in different ways. And because you controlled the character, you felt attached to a character who wasn't necessarily doing much. Yeah. If that makes sense. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I do have another review from Kim Newman of Empire, and he awarded the film two out of five stars. And he says, occasionally the special effects raise some interest, but there is never any sense that this is more than a technical showreel interspersed with Three Stooges cast-offs. Produced by Jake Eberts and Roland Joff, usually so keen on serious quality subjects, and directed by the husband and wife team who gave you lots of music videos and Max Headroom, this poor imitation of a 90s blockbuster stumbles from start and winds up flat in the dirt. Game over, man. Game over. Wow. So that's what Kim Newman has to say. It's a, I'm amazed that he's awarded it two stars. I guess they're for the technical aspects of the yeah, film. Yeah, I think he's awarding any kind of technical filmmaking merit there. Again, it's hard to disagree, really, with how the film turned out. I think it's got some potential to be more than it is, perhaps not under the Mario banner. Yeah. There's some great scenes in there. There's some scenes that really worked. I really like the elevator scene. But overall, it, it just doesn't work as a story and as a script let me ask both of you a question no i'm going to anyway (laughs) (laughs) andy who has never played mario games and gaz who's played loads of mario games sometimes it's it's quite difficult to i mean obviously you can try and be subjective in your review and how you critique a film Mm -hmm. 
But there is that element of sometimes it's so bad that it's good, like The Room, for example, you know. Yeah. Or sometimes you have a nostalgic value which might add an extra half a star or star to a review score. Yeah. What would both of you two, with your difference of opinion based on how you've played or how you haven't played Mario games in the past, what would you give out of five? And does the fact that you have or haven't played it influence that score in any way? Well, I think for me it does because I'm looking at it from a perspective of how could they interpret the Super Mario Brothers this way? Mm. How has that character become this character? How have these things become these elements? And I guess I'm always approaching it from that perspective. And I do enjoy this film in a so bad it's good way. And it does interest me. But in the same way that I guess it's like watching a car crash happen. I know it's not good to see, but I can't take my eyes off it. Mm. You know? (laughs) Yes. And that's how I look at Super Mario. And I'm knowing the games is part of that. But I also think you could perhaps enjoy it in the same way without having played the games. It just takes one element away. And in all, I do have to take in the nostalgia factor. I, I do have to approach that and say, okay, yeah, I am rating it from a place that this film it invested something in my childhood and yeah I'd, I'd probably end up giving it somewhere between like a five out of ten or something like that it's straight down the middle i i do know it could be more and i do know it's probably largely dog shit but at the same time i enjoy watching it and any film that i enjoy for whatever reason deserves something yeah it doesn't have to be a good film to enjoy no. it, essentially no exactly How yeah you did but i i'd probably still stick with the two out of five thing because even just looking at as a straight fantasy film so like three and a half out of ten. Yeah, because I say on a technical level it's fine, but as a standalone fantasy film, if you were just watching it as that, it doesn't make any sense yeah. at all and just completely falls apart. So yeah, I think even just looking at it in that respect, I mean, it has some fun moments, but it can't overcome all the issues mm-hmm. that are weighing it down, even despite the uh, Super Mario Brothers how unlike it is i mean they're so superfluous to the film anyway yeah even you can just look at it as a fantasy film in general and it just doesn't really work that well i mean technically it does but on a story front doesn't work at all no it doesn't how about yourself how would you rate it probably maybe like four and a half maybe just a shy of splitting it down the middle like yourself yeah Uh, probably in the middle of both of you actually yeah well yeah it's definitely um riding on nostalgia factor in my opinion for me it's not a lost it's definitely a below average (laughs) film um it's not a lost classic whatsoever but yeah i'd say the nostalgia factor is just what's pipping it up just a tiny amount for me yeah the same yeah same thing like when i see um the neon signs of like the hammer brothers yeah <laughs> tattoo parlor whatever and like when you i guess a little bullet bill in in the stompers those kind of things do bring a smile to my face even how he fights cooper at the end and he's, yes. he's inside that massive bucket that looks a lot like the spaceship that he flies yeah. in yeah it's, it's things like that that okay yeah it makes me smile but it makes me think also how the fuck did it become that <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> how they interpreted that that way it was actually it's a bit weird in the game for people who haven't played it like he has this white dome little it's got a clown, clown face, face on it, hasn't weird it? Yeah. spaceship thing with a propeller underneath he kind of sits in that and throws things or fireballs at mario in, in some of the games yeah it's weird and so they kind of try and get that as best they can yeah. with that thing that he's sort of sat in above the road when they do the ghostbusters style like both shooting with the devolve guns and he turns into dinosaur cooper yeah so yeah well you're right that was another nostalgic thing that i picked up on as well and yeah just I really like that, but maybe if I hadn't played the games, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind. Yeah, exactly. Because I imagine that didn't for you, Andy. I imagine that no, never... No, it's completely lost on me. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And they're like, yeah, they're nice touches, but they don't... They, they don't add anything They don't add anything. It. Yeah. Again, it's it's entertainment value in the way that it makes me think. 
I'm constantly asking how they came to the conclusions they did and how they came to interpret several things the way that they did. Even if it's not in good ways, at least yeah. I'm engaged with it in some way. It's relatively rare that elements like that, little bits of fan service, yeah. enhance the film in general. That That's exactly what fan service is, just fan service. Yeah, normally I'm against films that have such like obvious fanboy references or anything like that, but actually this is all this film has. Exactly, yeah. So, so that's the only way it can be appreciated in any form whatsoever. And the final thing is, for me, um, from the critics and reception front, is that the film has an IMDb score of 4 out of 10. So that tells you that even the public don't really like this film. (laughs) It's hard to argue with it as a rating, though, to be honest. Going on to the box office numbers, like we were saying before, this was not a cheap film. No. At the time, it was quite an expensive film. So it was made for $48 and I knew that it went quite a lot over budget, and I imagine they would have given it $25, $30 because it was an independent production at the time. So $48 for an independent production is... A lot of money. Very hefty, yeah. Yeah. And its total lifetime gross domestically was just under $21 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had an opening weekend of $8.5 million. And it was released to about 2,000 theaters, which would have been quite wide at the yeah, time. Yeah, would have been, yeah. For a film of this nature, to not even get over half your budget with your domestic gross is pretty bad. No, you need to be matching your budget yeah. at least. Yeah. And then maybe pick up the rest on international. Because at this time, your domestic, for an American film, being a, a, a domestic budget would have been almost 60 to 70% of your whole intake because your markets were so much more limited back then. So to get a domestic like that would have been really bad. Well, it's had such an adverse effect on Roland Joff's career as mm. well because from this point onwards, his career took a real nosedive. And I think it all comes down to this film and the amount of money that people invested in this film as an independent production. mm Looking at the films it, it went against, it's a really, really odd week for films. I mean, it's it's incredibly 90s, like a lot of films that never really made it out of the decade sort of thing. So we've got uh, Cliffhanger at number one that week that made 20, <laughs> 20 and a half million dollars. So basically Cliffhanger made all the money that Mario Brothers did in one week. Wow. Okay. And um, Still one of my favorite Sylvester Stallone films, that yeah. great turn by John Lithgow as the bad guy as well. <laughs> Yeah, and then you've got Made in America at number two. Yeah. Dave at number three. And then you've got Super Mario Brothers at number four. So it opened, oh, so at, opened, it it opened four. at four. Yeah. So given how popular Super Mario was at the time, yeah. the marketing obviously didn't do very well. No. I think people knew what kind of film it was going to be because it didn't look like Super Mario Brothers. At number five, you've got Hot Shots Part Deux. The best Hot Shots. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sliver. It's an erotic thriller at a time when erotic thrillers were a dime a dozen. We've got, uh, at number seven, we've got Menace to Society. I used to think that was a sequel. Yeah, it's a Menace. It looks like a sequel. <laughs> Honestly. Or like Step Up to Da Streets. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I genuinely thought Menace to Society was a sequel to Menace. Yeah. <laughs> I never watched it because I hadn't seen the first. <laughs> menace. Oh, we've got Indecent Proposal at number eight. Uh, and then we've got Dragon, the Bruce Lee story I've at seen number that. nine. I like that. Yeah. You have angered the dragon. And uh, <laughs> that's not a quote. No. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> and then we've got Posse at number 10, which I've never heard of. Never heard of. No. Not even a massive, massive week apart from Cliffhanger, really. And it can't even perform well yeah, with those films. Yeah. You think their advertising would be their main focus from a business point of view mm-hmm. to get the Super Mario brand out there. 
and get bums on seats that way. But I think yeah. it's because it didn't look so much like the game that they obviously had problems merging the two together. That, yeah, like, the reconciling two the two. It felt so detached from the video game or the way the video game looked that there was no way they were going to be able to meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a problem with video game adaptations anyway because there's always this problem that, oh, we'll make a film out of a video game. It'll be huge because all the gamers will come and see it. And they always forget that gamers don't generally go and see films at the cinema. They like staying at home. Yeah, it needs you to know? appeal to more. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. To give an example on that, not, not about staying at home, I mean like you know, off the back of a um, game franchise. I've never played World of Warcraft. No. And the trailer really doesn't excite me or interest no, me. Have, you, have no. you seen it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it looks pretty epic and, you know, but I don't know. There's just, it, it seems like other things that have been before it, so to speak. It's because we're at a point where these films are a dime a dozen in terms of these fantasy epics. And everybody's riding a kind of burnout after the Hobbit films. We don't really need to see this type of film for a while. And especially it done in this type of way where it looks very over-reliant on CGI. And I don't mean that as a slight against CGI because I think some of the CGI in the Warcraft trailer, some of it looks absolutely stunning. Yeah. But in the visuals, there's nothing being offered that we haven't already seen before. No. It needed a few years breathing space at least, especially coming straight on the heels of The Hobbit. But the one thing that's making me excited in that film is just the name, and that's Duncan Jones. Because I haven't seen a Duncan Jones film yet that I didn't like, and he's made at least one masterpiece. Which he's got the two films, Moon and Source Code, and Moon is a genuine masterpiece, in my opinion. And Source Code is a really good, very enjoyable little thriller. Yeah, I like Source Code. Mm. And so inventive. I want to see Warcraft to see what he can do with it. But that trailer, whoever's cut that trailer, perhaps it isn't shown doing the film justice. No. But no. Um, I have faith in Duncan Jones. Okay, so before I ask the questions, I'm just going to do a quick whip around. Is there any... We're asking for his money now. Yeah. <laughs> Are we, uh, is there anything that you want to add? Anything that we forgot? You know, any tidbit of information? I think I have one that we've forgotten so far. And that's just the simple element of the Devo chamber. Can we have a little clip of Devo under this? Because I'm always <laughs> puzzled why they didn't have any Devo on the fucking soundtrack. Soon as it Considering they're constantly Devo, yeah. saying Devo and Devo <laughs> going play, yeah. Devo chamber. Let's just play whip it underneath yeah. this section. <laughs> Well, there is a part in this scene where they go into the Devo chamber and it's this um, machine where they can make people evolve or devolve. And it says what period it can make people devolve to. So whether it's <laughs> Jurassic or Crustaceous or whatever, and it's, it has this primordial soup one, I guess. Whatever they turn it to, this voice says what it is that it's going to devolve someone into. And it always seems surprised. Like, <laughs> there's a scene where it goes, they, they're about to turn Toad into a Goomba. And they make him turn it to crustaceous and it goes, ooh, crustaceous. <laughs> like, I mean, this is the fucking artificial intelligence in the machine. Why is it, why is it like surprise? And, mm, crustaceous it? period. It's fabulous. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the only thing that I forgot to add. And it was just, it was important enough, damn it, that I had to get it in here. Yeah. Oh, my, why just the heads? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I don't understand that. The other thing as well, we were talking about before, just on a technical level, obviously they needed it technically to get the people inside to operate them, but why did it make them taller as well? Like, way, way taller mm. than they would have been in the past. And the other thing is, did you notice when, after he'd been changed into a Gumba, his whole costume changed? So when he went into the chamber, he was dressed as Toad. And then when and he then came out, he, he had, came the, out, he had the whole red... Have you never... No, clothes evolve and devolve as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. Come on, guys. 
I also noticed that he's still got the same swirl on his head as a Goomba. He's still got this. That aside, why did they put a harmonica back on him? And also the oh, fact that you keep hearing the harmonica, he never yeah. fucking plays it. You never actually see his lips going on the harmonica playing No, it. no, you There's don't. There's loads of shots where it just plays magically. Yeah. There's a bit where he's just when he's got the plate of meat and he goes out and Ampatuna comes in. As he's walking away, it's like he just goes into like some harmonica solo <laughs> as he's walking out yeah. of the room. Yeah. Like, I'd actually have to say that's probably my favourite little scene yeah. when he brings back the steamed vegetables. I love it. I think that's brilliant. And then brilliant he gets scene. set on fire. It's so <laughs> distressing. <laughs> you know what? There's no other character in the film that's that I as actually joyous cared about as Toad the Goomba. Yeah, I felt <laughs> bad for him when he set on fire. Like, yeah, put I him out. Genuinely did. Just that kindness that radiates off him yeah. when he brings back yeah. those steamed vegetables. <laughs> He's a fucking dinosaur man that actually went off and steamed some vegetables. <laughs> I want to see that scene of yeah. him in the kitchen waiting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good job. Okay, and so that brings us to the questions that I ask at the end of every single episode. And first up, are you guys any closer to understanding why Super Mario Brothers has been forgotten? I think we've already spoke about it in quite some detail. Yeah. Still got to throw it out there. Yeah. I, I am now after this discussion. Because you're not really necessarily on your own. You wouldn't go into a film like we have here. But from a technical point of view, and definitely from a script point of view, and from a nostalgic point of view, just basically every single point of view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I can, it falls short. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, it does, yeah. Well, I think so as well. I think it's just because it tries to appeal to everybody and ends up appealing to no one. The issues with the script are an example of that, in that they probably had something that could have been interesting at one point, but they wanted to make something that was too childish, too late in the day, and they ended up making this film that was neither anything to anyone. And it wouldn't appease fans of the game, it wouldn't appease fans of films in general. So that's why it just falls straight down the middle. I think the other reason it's forgotten as well is because it was a disaster and notorious, but not notorious enough in that it soiled the Mario franchise because it was so detached from the way that the franchise was and still is. It's so separate to the games that even though it was a disaster as a film and notorious as a film, it wasn't notorious within the Mario world. It was just something that they could easily just shut off and go, yeah, that was a film version. It didn't ruin anything for Mm -hmm. anybody. So I think that's the reason why it's been forgotten because it can just be shunned as, oh yeah, it's that movie adaptation that they tried making. Plus, it's the only one as well. There yeah. hasn't been another one yet to bring this back in the spotlight yeah. in a big way. So mm. There are rumours that Disney are involved in trying to make a Super Mario Brothers movie. And this is from a couple of years ago. I do remember the news coming out, but there was talk about them making an animated Super Mario Brothers movie, yeah. which I think possibly is the way to go That's right now. That's the only real way yeah. you can make it work. I used to watch the cartoon, the Mario cartoon. I did, yeah. I had on tape. I kind of like that, yeah, VHS. I liked it then, but I'm worried about watching it again. Mm. My favourite part of the show was the the live-action guy that they had as Mario, and they actually introduced words to the Mario theme, which was, swing your arms from side to side, come on, it's time to do-do the Mario. (laughs) (laughs) That was the actual theme to the show. What was the bit that just after that when he goes? I can't remember. I think it was him just swinging his arm <laughs> as he appeared in the background and showgirl style. <laughs> Can cannon instead of two feathers, it's two big like polystyrene hammers. <laughs> two big pizza slices. <laughs> and finally, 
Is Super Mario Brothers best forgotten? Should it remain out there and never to be found? Or is it one of the best of the forgotten? Over to you guys. In your own time. (laughs) Can I give an opinion on this? A general opinion and then a personal one. Yeah. Okay. So I'd say generally it's best forgotten. Yeah. But personally... It's one of the best of the forgotten. Yeah. Because of my own feelings and and history with the film. I get that. I get where you're coming from. I think I have to say that it's best forgotten simply because of the film that it is. And I always have to take off my nostalgia glasses and judge things as they are. And as it is, Super Mario Brothers is a film that certainly should remain best forgotten. But I will say that there is something there in the film. If you are a fan of Mario, you're going to find something interesting about this film. For anybody that likes troubled productions or troubled histories, they're going to find something to enjoy. For anybody that likes so bad they're good films, they're going to find something to enjoy in Mario. And for that reason, it is best forgotten, but it's not without its charm. Yeah. And I say, if if there's a video out there with all the Goomba footage edited together, I would just go and watch that, really, because that's all the good stuff anyway. Super Mario Brothers Holiday Special. (laughs) Goomba special. <laughs> that would be like the Star Wars holiday special with it the Wookiees. <laughs> like, yeah. Exactly. Like, like 20 minutes. <laughs> for 20 minutes with no subtitles. It'd be funny if there was like Toad, who still is a Goomba, was now living in the Bronx or something with a wife who was a human and they had like weird little human <laughs> Goomba <sitcom>. children. <laughs> yeah, so, at home with the Goombas. <laughs> But yeah, I'd say on the film as a whole, it would have to be best forgotten. But like I said, if you do like Trouble Productions, this is definitely one to watch because it's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. And the UK Blu-ray does have a fantastic warts and all making of documentary that I would recommend to anybody out there that just likes to listen to the history of Trouble Productions. Everybody is very candid about how bad the film went and about where it went wrong. And there's a lot of information in there, some of which we've not had the time to touch upon today in this podcast. I'd recommend it to anybody. Get the Blu-ray. It's cheap enough. And just another one, if you notice it in a few scenes, apparently... um... Bob Hoskins broke his finger when he slammed one of the car doors and for the, well, not for the entire production, but there's a few scenes after that where he's actually wearing a pink coloured cast with fingers painted on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you do spot it, it does look like he's got a bit of a gammy hand. It's actually because it's not his hand. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I can't believe you've not mentioned this as well, is that this film is the biggest regret of Bob Hoskins' yes. life. Yes, we have. Yeah. yeah, we've got to mention and, it. And yeah. uh, it was actually three questions that they asked him. Like, is it something you want it to was, erase? It's big biggest disappointment and role that he regretted taking and area of your life you want to erase that's the yeah. third question and to all three of those questions he said super mario brothers and that that was in 2007 so uh yeah he was able to almost sum up the whole of his life there and that's the one that sticks out so yeah it must have been pretty bad and the only thing i have to add uh, one last thing as well is that dennis hopper actually uh walks like a dinosaur in the film he holds his arms up to his chest like he's a little got little t-rex arms in several points in the film and they actually had to ask him to stop doing it because it looked too stupid i didn't even realize until you told me and now i can't unsee it <laughs> yeah. <It's>, uh... <laughs> Yeah, he does have his hands up like that quite a lot. A lot. Yeah, it's because he's wanting to be a T-Rex. Before we sign off, I'd like to hand it to you, Aiden, to tell us a little bit about your series on YouTube. Yeah, so um, basically it's called First Impressions. 
I didn't want to necessarily do like a review show. There's, there's already a lot of people doing that on YouTube and a lot of really good people doing that. Yeah. But what I wanted to try and do was, I always really like that magical moment when you come out of a cinema and you're sort of like, you're outside the cinema with your friends and before you all go off to get a bus or to drive home or yeah. you all have that little moment where you're trying to barf out all of your thoughts. Yeah. About Still trying to form that opinion. Exactly. So it's, it's not, it's an opinion that could, could change you know it's not a review it's just your first impressions and that's what i try to do with the with the show just starting out just new on youtube but um yeah basically we'll go and watch something and then we get back to where we film it and we just try and do it as fast as possible so it is literally just our first impressions and every now and again have a guest on it like you came on the star wars yeah episode, it did yeah it was a good time which was really funny so it's uh, it's on youtube you can just uh, if you search my name aiden belazer um that will probably come up with it better than if you've searched first impressions at the moment yeah and yeah if you search first impressions movies tv and games into facebook you'll find the facebook page we're just growing at the moment so if anyone does go through and watch anything you know share it out and um subscribe that would really help out that's the main thing at the moment trying to get more eyes on it and yeah, definitely get you guys back on that um, in the future. Yeah, I'm looking for forward sure. to it. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining us today. You've been an excellent guest. We've really enjoyed your company. But we're not going to ask you back. So. No, no. It's a, it's a no from us. <laughs> <laughs> Is my uh, presenting style best forgotten? Or? <laughs> but no, it's been really nice to come and do something off camera as well. And um, I listened to you guys a lot beforehand. So yeah, it was really nice doing something a little bit different for me and um, to be able to get into a film so deep. Yeah. Yeah. And meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> with, this, with this deep and meaningful yeah. film was, a, was an awesome experience. So thank you, guys. Okay, and that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies. So please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. We'll be back with our next episode as we plunge into a dark world of dark alleyways, amnesia, and dark alleyways in Alex Proyer's Dark City. Until then, it's bye from everyone here at Best Forgotten Movies, and thanks for listening. <laughs>